Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, January 11th. In today's news, the PGA pulls its 2022 championship from President Trump's golf course as Democrats tentatively schedule an impeachment vote. More evidence emerges that Trump exerted potentially criminal influence on Georgia election officials. And Joe Biden picks Bill Burns to direct the CIA. But first, the big idea. Two days before Congress was set to formalize President-elect Biden's victory, Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund was growing increasingly worried about the size of the pro-Trump crowds expected to stream into Washington in protest. To be on the safe side, Sund asked House and Senate security officials for permission to request that the D.C. National Guard be placed on standby in case he needed quick backup. But Sund said Sunday that they turned him down. In his first interview since pro-Trump rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol last week, Sund, who has since resigned his post, told my colleague Carol Lennig that his supervisors were reluctant to take formal steps to put the guard on call, even as police intelligence suggested that the crowd Trump had invited to Washington probably would be much larger than earlier demonstrations. Sun said House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving said he wasn't comfortable with the optics of formally declaring an emergency ahead of the demonstration. Meanwhile, he says Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stinger suggested that Sun should informally seek out his contacts, asking the guard to lean forward and be ready to be on alert. He said it was the first of six times his requests for help were rejected or delayed. Two days later, on Wednesday afternoon, Sun's forces, already in the midst of crisis, were still waiting for help. He says he pleaded five more times as the scene grew more dire than he'd ever imagined on the historic Capitol grounds. Now, Irving and Stinger are not commenting, but an army of 8,000 pro-Trump demonstrators streamed down Pennsylvania Avenue after hearing Trump speak near the White House. Sun's outer perimeter on the Capitol's west side was breached within 15 minutes. With 1,400 Capitol police officers on duty, his forces were quickly overrun. Just before 2 p.m., the mob entered the Capitol, sending lawmakers and staff scrambling for safety. D.C. police had quickly dispatched hundreds of officers to the scene, but it wasn't enough. At 2.26 p.m., Sund joined a conference call to the Pentagon to plead for additional backup. Sund recalled telling generals at the Pentagon, quote, I have got to get boots on the ground right now. On the call were several officials from D.C. government. The mayor's chief of staff confirms that this happened. Lieutenant General Walter Pyatt, director of the Army staff, told the head of the Capitol Police that he could not recommend that his boss, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, approve the request. Everyone else on the call was flabbergasted. Pyatt explained, quote, I don't like the visual of the National Guard standing a police line with the Capitol in the background. Again and again, Sund screamed the situation was more dire than he understood. Despite the pleas, the first National Guard personnel didn't arrive at the Capitol until 5 40 p.m. after four people had died and the worst was long over. Sadly, U.S. Capitol Police announced Sunday the death of off-duty officer Howie Liebengood, who had been on the scene during Wednesday's clashes. Its statement didn't list the cause of death, but two law enforcement officials tell us that the 51-year-old died by suicide. Post reporters have now identified by name over 100 members of the mob. Almost all are white, and most are men. 
They hailed from at least 36 states. Their professions touch nearly every facet of American society. Lawyers, local lawmakers, real estate agents, law enforcement officers, military veterans, construction workers, hairstylists, and nurses. Among the crowd were devout Christians who highlighted Bible verses, adherents of the QAnon conspiracy theory, and members of documented hate groups, including white nationalist organizations and militant right-wing organizations such as the Proud Boys. Amy Britton, Julie Zausmer, Jen Abelson, David William, and Nicole Dunka report that the list they have compiled of the hundred names is just a limited cross-section of the thousands who descended upon the area. Yet they found some striking commonalities that are hard to ignore. Only one in six were women, almost all of them also white. Many left extensive social media documentation of their passions, ideologies, and in some cases disillusionment and vendettas. A handful of the most notorious rioters, including a man who carried a Confederate flag over his shoulder through the Capitol, haven't yet had their identities publicly confirmed by law enforcement. Dozens of people have been arrested, some for minor offenses like breaking curfew or unlawful entry. Others face more serious federal charges, including firearm possession, violent entry, and disorderly conduct. The count of those being charged is expected to grow rapidly in the coming days. Michael Schwerwin, the acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, said yesterday that his staff is literally working around the clock to make arrests and file charges. Yesterday, two men who allegedly carried zip ties around the Capitol during the riot were arrested, and they are now being investigated by counterterrorism prosecutors. Larry Rendell Brock, a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel, was arrested in Texas and charged with one count of knowingly entering a restricted building and one count of violent entry and disorderly conduct. Eric Moonshall, who was arrested in Tennessee, was charged with the same counts after being allegedly photographed climbing over a railing in the Senate gallery while carrying these plastic restraints. The U.S. Army announced that it is investigating a psychological operations officer at Fort Bragg who led a group of North Carolinians to D.C. for the Trump rally. Two police officers in Virginia with the Rocky Mount Police Department were placed on administrative leave after the town discovered that they attended the riot. At least two Seattle police officers who were in D.C. during the riot had been placed on administrative leave. And a police detective in Philadelphia from the unit that investigates the backgrounds of potential recruits has been temporarily reassigned based on an anonymous tip that she attended the rally as well. An Idaho man who posted a now-deleted photo of himself on Instagram in the Senate chamber, sitting in the chair that Vice President Pence had been in just moments earlier before being forced to flee, told the Boise CBS affiliate on Sunday that he, quote, got caught up in the moment. Josiah Colt, in a statement, said that he is speaking with his lawyer to see what his next steps should be. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start a new week. Number one. Trump is starting to suffer tangible consequences for inciting last week's mob. The organizers of the PGA Championship canceled their plans to hold next year's event at Trump's Bedminster, New Jersey Golf Club in the wake of the riot. The board voted Sunday night to exercise its right to terminate the agreement, which had been inked back in 2014. The PGA Championship is one of the four majors in men's golf, and therefore it was scheduled to be the most prestigious event ever held at any Trump property. Meanwhile, Here in Washington, everyone is consumed by the debate over what to do about Trump during his final nine days in power. Most House Democrats remain mad and insist that Trump must face severe consequences for inciting the assault. But Joe Biden has signaled that he doesn't want the effort to interfere with his agenda during the first hundred days that he's in office. Some key Democrats are quietly looking for a way to put the brakes on all this. 
As one top Democrat put it yesterday, the train has left the station. It's on a track that, while people have reservations, nobody really knows how to stop it. This conflict confronting Biden is a first test on what will be an incendiary dilemma facing his presidency. How hard to pursue accountability for Trump and those in his orbit for their misconduct while in office. Last night, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that the House will proceed with bringing impeachment legislation to the floor. First, though, she delivered an ultimatum to Pence. Democrats plan to pass a resolution calling on Pence and the cabinet to remove Trump under the provisions of the 25th Amendment before proceeding with the impeachment vote. Pelosi says Democrats will seek unanimous consent at a brief pro forma session today to pass that, but Republicans are certain to block the move, which will force a vote on the floor tomorrow. The earliest action on impeachment could come Tuesday during a meeting of the House Rules Committee, which will meet to prepare legislation for the House floor. Actual votes on impeachment or other items can occur no sooner than Wednesday, exactly one week before Biden is inaugurated. As of Sunday afternoon, a draft impeachment resolution has 210 co-sponsors in the House. Jim Clyburn, the number three in House leadership, proposed yesterday that the House vote this week to impeach, but then wait a few months to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate for a trial. These comments provoked widespread frustration among some Democrats. Others say Congress should censure Trump instead of impeaching him, an action that could be taken quickly and attract broader support. Democratic delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, the D.C. non-voting representative in the House, said she plans to introduce such a measure today, describing it as the only way to send a bipartisan, bicameral message without delaying Biden's agenda. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger from the suburbs of Chicago suggested he could back such a censure motion. White House spokesman Judd Deere announced that Trump will travel to Alamo, Texas tomorrow to mark progress on the border wall. He did not speak to the public on Sunday, and he has been banned from Twitter. An ABC News poll published Sunday found that 56% of Americans think Trump should be removed from office before January 20th, although only 13% of Republicans support doing so. Overall, two in three Americans lay blame squarely at Trump's feet for the riot and the breach of the Capitol. Number two. Over the weekend, five significant stories came out about the hands-on role that the president played in Georgia, which suggests that he may have abused his power for personal political gain in a way that itself would be impeachable. The Wall Street Journal reports that White House officials forced Atlanta's top federal prosecutor to resign last Monday, the day before Georgia Senate runoffs, because Trump was upset he was not doing enough to investigate the president's bogus claims of election fraud. A senior Justice Department official at the behest of the White House called the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, Byung Pak, late on the night of January 3rd and forced him out. Second, my colleague Matt Zapatosky reports that the federal prosecutor in Savannah, whom Trump personally picked to take over the U.S. attorney's office in Atlanta, brought to his new assignment two assistants previously tasked with monitoring possible election fraud. By default, leadership of the Atlanta office was supposed to pass to Kurt Erskine, a longtime federal prosecutor who had been PAC's number two. But the DOJ says Trump issued a written order demanding that Bobby Christine get the job instead. Legal observers say this is highly irregular for many reasons, including that Atlanta already has more prosecutors than Savannah, including those with more experience in election cases. Third, Trump's attorneys seemed to stand down in their effort to challenge election results in Georgia by voluntarily dropping five separate lawsuits that they had filed, which were pending against Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. But 
Trump's lawyers may have exposed themselves to court sanctions by falsely claiming in sworn filings that their request for dismissal was the result of a settlement agreement with Raffensperger. There was no settlement. Raffensperger's attorneys responded in court that this is a lie and that there was no deal. Fourth, my colleague Amy Gardner reports that Trump called Georgia's lead elections investigator on December 23rd and pushed this person to, quote, find the fraud during a lengthy conversation that has not previously been reported. Trump told the official that they would be a, quote, national hero if this person claimed that they had discovered irregularities. Trump placed that call while the individual was leading an inquiry into allegations of ballot fraud in Cobb County. Legal professionals say the president's attempt to intervene this way in an ongoing investigation could amount to obstruction of justice or violate other Georgia laws. Fifth, Trump called Kelly Leffler while he was on Air Force One flying to Georgia last Monday for his final rally before the runoffs there. Politico reports that Trump threatened to, quote, do a number on you from the stage if Leffler wouldn't agree to support his electoral college challenges the next day in the Senate to overturn the election. Desperate, Leffler agreed to do so before he spoke. Ultimately, after she lost and the mob stormed the Capitol, the appointed senator announced that she would not vote to reject the results from her own state after all. Number three, looking forward past January 20th, President-elect Joe Biden announced plans this morning to nominate Bill Burns, a former career diplomat who has served both parties and has won respect at home and abroad to run a central intelligence agency that has been badly battered by the Trump administration. The choice of Burns is the incoming administration's last major personnel decision. Post columnist David Ignatius, who broke the news, says Burns is an inside player, brainy, reserved, collegial. He's also loyal to his superiors, sometimes to a fault. For an agency that lives on personal trust, Burns is an apt choice. Bill is widely viewed as the best foreign service officer of his generation. His list of mentors is a who's who of diplomacy, perhaps topped by Jim Baker. We're told that what appealed to Biden, in addition to a personal comfort level with Burns, is his reputation as a nonpartisan figure who has served in hard places, namely Russia and the Middle East. Over the years, he's also developed close relationships with the countries that are the agency's key liaison partners. Though a diplomat, not a spy, Burns is a classic gray man, like those who populate the intelligence world. And he has often served as a secret emissary. The title of his memoir, which came out in 2019, is The Back Channel. It refers in part to his role as the covert intermediary during the initial contacts between the United States and Iran that led to the 2015 nuclear agreement. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, January 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.